I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a pleasure to introduce Mike Harrison and Je- Jen Hodgson. Um, Mike has you all know perfectly well, is uh, one of the UK's greatest living novelists. Um, Every genre he has written in, uh, which is a good proportion of them, he's subverted from the inside. Um, And the latest is a memoir with Wish I Was Here, an anti-memoir. It's a marvellous piece of kit. I finished it on the Elizabeth line this morning. What a business. Um... (laughs) Uh, he'll be in conversation about it this evening and reading from it uh, with Jen Hodgson, a literary scholar um, <laughs> on, who's John. currently uh, who's done so much to bring the works, especially of Anne Quinn, to uh, public view and publication where they belong. And I believe is currently working on a biography of Quinn. And what a piece of kit that will be when it uh, when it comes out, and we shall see you here for uh, for the launch, of course. Of kit, yeah. Um, yeah. Welcome, Mike. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm going to do a, a very short introduction, if that's all right, and then I think uh, Mike's going to kick kick us off with a reading after that. Uh, okay, so. Uh, Mike published his first story in 1966 in Science Fantasy magazine. Since then, he has published 12 novels, the most recent of which is The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, for which he won the Goldsmiths Prize in 2020, and he's also published uh, five short story collections. His influence on a new generation of writers as a pioneer of hybrid forms fictional hinterlands, visionary moods and works that obsess about all the glitches and holes and losses in real life is visible throughout British fiction. Look to so many literary forms and fields of inquiry of the recent past and you'll find that Mike's already been there. He's found the form, he's messed it about, he's shown you where the joints are and he's moved on again. Tonight we're here for his new book, Wish I Was Here, subtitled An Anti-Memoir, So clearly he's been at it again, taking a familiar form, defying its conventions, making it do what it's about. For myself as a writer, but perhaps even more so as an amateur weirdo, Mike's work and his presence within literary culture have been for me completely formative. Can I call you a spiky old sci-fi dude, Mike? Yeah, yeah, you can, you can. Yeah. He said I could, so this sparky old sci-fi dude, as he was called in a review of the weekend, that's not my coinage, uh, is a beacon, and it's my pleasure to be chatting with him and to you all tonight. So, oh, um, I think you're going to kick us off with a reading, right? I am indeed. Okay. Thanks, Jen. 
You all right? Am I? Uh, I am wiped up. Yeah. Aren't I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is going to be a version of the of the bit that appeared on the LRB blog, uh, which um, I've cut about and messed with generally. And it's called The Real, The Weird and The Evidently Written. Lots of ghosts inside this place, most of them your own. The mirror's not cracked from side to side so much as on holiday from itself. And you're bored with the personal lives of the detectives. You're bored with the footsteps in the hall. Someone was just now saying, at the corner of the stair. And someone else replied, sure you were, sure you were. And then she says, it's been an eye-opener, this whole situation. The fact is, you're on the short side of everything now, where all you get is the sound of a man scraping the end of a piece of pipe and there's a minute's worth of change every minute and it puts you a long, long way from the things you felt were near. The weird is a way of writing about the real. It evolved slowly across the 20th century and then faster than the eye could follow across the first two decades of the 21st, arising from constant collisions, engagements and exchanges of fluids between the horror story, the ghost story, landscape writing, the hauntological and psychogeographical perspectives. All fictions are cultural. But at the moment, the weird is intensely cultural and self-aware. Do I dare write about it? Or would anything I could say only fix it in some awkward posture? People don't like this or that shot of themselves, caught in a coat that makes them look old, or reaching for something on a high shelf. I don't want the weird complaining with some reason. That's not what I meant. That's not what I meant at all. The weird is not Lovecraftian. It does not belong to H.P. Lovecraft. Neither is it a subset of the Gothic. It is not the same as Freud's Uncanny. It does not belong to the set of genre-adjacent sui generis. And it is not, as some affirm, a wholly political position. In each and every case, it should be a true idiolect. The weird is not a genre in itself. It is a process. It is also an emergent quality, which somehow precedes every combination of events, forms, genres and skills it can be said to emerge from. The Zen of the weird is to express it not as direct content, but as a potential inside other content. Pale, warm sun throwing very definite shadows of gravestones. Dead leaves scattered on the grass. The bulk of the church and its shadow dividing the graveyard. A few flowers in cellophane decorating a new grave. The stones, whose descriptions all seem to face away from the sun, look like darkened church windows. Mary Hannah Beardsall is buried here, daughter of Sarah Sanford, as is 267406 Private A. Bailey, who gave up his identity to the Northumberland Fusiliers in a war which is not clear, 
and ever will be. And Parker Hinchcliffe, finally, draped in blackberry suckers, oak and holly at the shoulder of his greenish stone, which is carved to represent a scroll. Others lie completely hidden. Nevertheless, the churchyard has a kind of calm, which I associate with oak woods under some moorland crag, until two boys go in with sticks and run about, banging them on the gravestones. Winter solstice. The woods now dark and slathered with mud. The sun rises as bitter as gall. The deer run diagonally across the hillside. The wind's along the edge. It's in the trees. You can hear the hounds, but they're still down in the valley. Insight can arrive in a language you don't yet speak. Or can it? All this is Gothic, but it isn't weird. <laughs> a weird text may not add up. It may not resolve. In fact, it almost certainly won't. Nevertheless, there will be no signposts. The author is not on this tour to guide you. The author's work has been to strip out affects, conclusions and motivations and then replace them out of order and at an odd angle. The way the picture is painted questions what's being painted. The things that are painted question each other. The internal lighting questions everything. Any episteme you can assemble to understand the weird should fail. Or even better, it should almost succeed. <laughs> if I had a familiar, it would resemble less a nervous exotic animal than a chipped enamel sink. <laughs> you would not find it on my shoulder, but in its natural environment, at the bottom of a derelict canal in the <laughs> industrial Midlands. Our connection would be the source of my special powers, which would neither mimic nor metaphorise its qualities, but be unmistakably sync-related. I would feel no emotion towards it, even when events caused us to be separated and tortured. A sync can feel nothing, that is one of the baseline or default qualities of a sink. But wherever I went, I would know that out there, bedded in the mud beneath the slow black water, never more than a mile or two from my present location, its energies focused, site-specific and calm, there my sink would be. That's the end. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Um, there's loads to pick up on there. Um, ghosts, metaphors, all kinds of things. But I want to start off uh, just with this thing of um, an anti-memoir. I think the, the anti part, we might expect that from you. You know, the idea of... <laughs> the idea of... Um, like uh, taking up a form and uh, showing its workings, interrogating it, things like that. I think it's the memoir bit that you would do that, that you would um, turn to memoir might be more surprising for a writer who's 
work, at least to me, has always seemed to insist that, you know, the whole point of this whole shebang was to try and make yourself unknowable and to admit that the, the impossibility of knowing yourself or really anything. The idea that, uh, or, or, or perhaps it makes perfect sense that you would turn your attention to memoir. So I wonder if you can kick us off by um, talking a bit about like the origins of the project and how you came to it. Yeah. The beginning of everything is kind of, is always formal for me. It's always uh -huh. to do with form. Um, and I, I'd been taking notes because I have a, a, a really bad memory for 40 years, 50 years, getting old. Um, many, of, of, many of them being respective, even uh, retrospective, even in the time when I uh, took them. Uh, and I looked at them one, I mean, I look at them every 10 years and I think I should be able to do something with all of this disconnected material, which is not autobiographical because it doesn't connect. Uh, which is the product of a, an already disastrously bad memory uh, and uh, which when you which has been written as an aid memoir but that when you look at it from your own future you can't remember why you wrote it <laughs> <laughs> or basically what you expected it to do for you um, so that so that it kind of dies, but then it then it gets reborn as something brand new that you can use as a building block. But what would you use it as a as a building block to build? Mm. Um, and I thought, well, I don't really believe in memory since mine is so bad. People talk about memory, you know. <laughs> I don't really know what they mean. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought, well, memoir, memory, you know. Obviously, this is all guff. Um, Let's let's interrogate this, um, and let's interrogate it by um, also producing the confusion uh, that I felt as a kid when I was fairly dissociated. The reason my memory is bad is I never pay attention. Mm. I'm never like there mm -hmm. in the present. So how would I remember anything? I wasn't there. I was staring out of a window, you know, or I had gone climbing in my head. Um, so I wanted to reproduce that kind of uh, combination of confusion and uh, retrospective attempt to not, not never to produce any kind of causal sequence, any kind of narrative, mm. because actually that seems to be a total cheat. Mm. I can't find a narrative. Uh, but what I can find is, is these glimpses uh, which suddenly fire up in my head. And that's what I think of as memory, you know, like a Polaroid photograph, mm. bang, off it goes. Um, and that's all it is. It's, it's not attached to anything. It's not part of the narrative. What can I make of that? So that's what I did. Mm. There's, um, there's a metaphor like threaded throughout the book of um, the, uh, the self-storage unit. And um, you made me think of that with the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the notes that have their origin in the attempt to, like, remember something. And then over time, they become something completely different. And the, the, that way of describing it as a kind of, like, uh, storage unit where you've forgotten what you've put in, you've probably lost the key. Um, yeah, is a, is a really good way to describe that. Yeah. Um, in fact, it happened to me. Uh, I put stuff away for about 10 years at one point. Uh, lost the contract somewhere in the files, so-called, mm. which is like a cupboard, 
full of dusty paper. Uh, the archive. Had nothing, <laughs> yeah, the archive, had nothing, <laughs> nothing digitised. Um, I could have taken you to where these things were stored, but I couldn't tell you where it was. Mm. I couldn't actually give you an address or anything like that. And in the end, I did have to go because we were going to move. And I thought I'd better look at some of this stuff that I had put in there 10 years ago. The guy at the desk said to me, oh, yes, he says, one of those. He says, you've, come, you've just come to look, have you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, I have just come to look, actually. You know, I don't want to make some, do some triage. You know, what am I going to take? He says, um, you'll be back here in two or three weeks with a van uh. and you'll chuck the whole lot on the dump. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I mean, I, I saved about two items and that was yeah. it. All the rest went on the dump. And I think, you know, my, my adult memory works like that. Mm. My, my childhood so-called memory work, worked on the basis that I was so dissociated I was never present. My adult memory um, was kind of a, process, a cyclic process of storage and loss, storage and loss, storage and loss. Mm. Um, I, I found that a very valuable metaphor <laughs> in writing this book. Yeah. 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 So it, so it sounds like, uh, you know, you were drawing upon these uh, notes that were originally written as an ear to memory, but uh, a, a, by now, like, completely decontextualised. So it sounds in a way like the, the, the putting together with this book was sort of like, um, almost like a work of collage with those notes as the kind of constraint. Where, you know, these kind of decontextual, yeah. unrelated notes, and it was about the, the connections between them. Is, was, is that right? Yeah. Um, I started with 220,000 words of notes, um, which I cut down to 50, through several kind of filters and grids, looking for themes, basically. Filters and grids? Filters and You're grids. You're talking about data management now, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I was there before anybody. Yeah, as with everything, as yeah. with so much. <laughs> um, as, you, as you have said. <clears throat> and it's true. Um, so, no, I did that, filters and grids, yeah. and basically got down to, I don't know, half a dozen, ten, eight themes, um, and then thought, well, OK, I've got all this stuff, I've got eight themes, um, let's loosely group them, and then let's see how they join, let's see how they speak to one another, mm. you know? Um, and, and if two bits speak to one another, and accrete into something, how many words will it take of new material to just link them up that little bit if they need it. Um, but the game was to, uh, to do that as, as little as possible. Um, the game was to find bits that already uh, would join together. Yeah. You know? Um, it was... Um, I got up at five or six o'clock in the morning for quite a long period during lockdown, as everybody did, you know, with nothing to do mm. and full of self-hatred and uh, staring into a middle distance. Uh, and so, I know, I'll write this book. Um, and that's how I did it. <laughs> but then I took it to Luke. I took it to Luke after that and Luke looked at it and said, well, what you really need to do is this. Right. So I did it. <laughs> <laughs> You make it sound so simple. Mm, it was pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I want to uh, talk to you about the people in the book. 
because you know I, like one of the one of the the things that you are uh, you seem to be kind of overturning or subverting about memoir is this idea that you know a memoir is about a single integral knowable self whereas the the selves of the book are kind of i mean sort of like uh there's you but then there's like sort of uh, avatars of you there's ghosts of you there's like there's a, a kind of a cast of multiple characters but they're also like not really only uh, they're not really evenly differentiated they're sort of um they're they're kind of uh they're, they're not they're also like not separate entities within themselves. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They they can kind of swap places. And I am, um, and 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 they're kind of like bits of one another. I wonder how you came to that sort of like uh, that the the kind of creation of those multiple selves. Some of them just spoke to me, and Matt Boy just came along Matt and Boy, spoke yeah. to me and said, "I've been here all along, and oh. now is the time you yeah. know, when you're going to reveal my existence and how much you depend upon me." So I did that. But, that, but in fact, he soon became, and all the others started as, uh, in a sense, keys to the different themes and levels mm. of, of interest in the book. Um, so that most of most of what Beatrice says, yeah, and of course she's Beatrice because of Dante, um, is to do with writing. You know, yeah. she 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 keys in all the all the stuff about writing. Whereas Map Boy is responsible for failed navigation, <laughs> as it were, a kind of Burrusian uh. navigation. Um, so that was how they developed. There are some real people in there, obviously. You can usually tell because I only give them an initial. Yeah. If they've got an initial, they're real um, ish. Yeah. And there's a lot of outright yeah. fiction, too. Yeah. I mean, there are some characters in there who are simply made up because I needed. A character to do something at that mm. point. <laughs> mm. um. Yeah, it was uh, the, the 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 thing of kind of um, the way that the book veers it kind of veers into fiction is a really interesting one to me. You know, like because it's because it's also a book about writing about it's like a craft book almost you know there's writing kind of writing mm. prompts you could uh you know you could uh, use it in a, in a kind of practical capacity like that but there's this sense that the the book kind of can't help itself and you're sort of like uh it's almost like showing you're working it kind of like veers off and it goes up coming back but there's just like a there's just like a little snippet we're coming back but you can you can see it in process the way it veers yes. some and some of it is illustrative directly mm. illustrative of, of a point that's been made previously or is going to be made at some point later. Um, some of it was just done because I felt as if it needed to be done at that point, and I can't explain that um, any more than I can explain the fact that a lot of the fiction I write has got a lot of non-fiction mixed in with it. Mm. You know, it's just that I am essentially hybrid <laughs> yeah you know yeah yeah I like the mixture I mm. like the way they transgress all the way along the contour line between fiction non-fiction on the slope as it were mm. between fiction and non-fiction I've always liked that climbers is you know a fairly good example of that I think um, so sometimes I did it just for the devil may care a bit yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
An another um, way that the book is seem to, seems to be kind of interrogating memoir is feels like it's to do with the, you know, the way that memoir prescribes the kind of life that it's possible to have, you know, the, the form that a life uh, should take. Because um, there's, um, there is, the, the, the person in the book, the person in the book is, is often terrified. Mm. There, there are these like moments of great terror. And, um, and you know, it, it says that the book uh, explains explicitly that it's, you know, a book about escaping. And um, it's hard to discern what it is that the, the character in the book is terrified of, but it feels like it might be something to do with um, the familiar, with the, like, the, the character is kind of terrified of the known rather than the unknown. You know, with those uh, like familiar patterns of life, with doing what you're brought up to do, yeah. all that stuff. I think if you replace the word terrified by anxiety stricken, anxiety stricken, okay. then then that would be a very apt description. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of the book is about escapism, obviously, uh, and about my constant, the constant internal war between trying to get out of uh, out of the ordinary. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and yet trying to control the impulse to do that via writing fiction. Mm. You know, my most successful escape was rock climbing. Yeah. You know, it was in the real world. It had real consequences. It was really exciting in the real sense of real. <laughs> um, and uh, it worked perfectly, but it was still escapism. Yeah. Uh, it took me about 10 years to, to get that. Mm. But I got it eventually. Um, what, what I was bored with by the time I was 30 was escaping by writing fiction about people who hit one another on the head with swords. Yeah. Because, like, I'd never hit anybody on the head with a sword. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, I'll go rock climbing because yeah. actually it's in the real world and you have to learn a thing. Yeah. You can't just say, I hit him on the head with a sword. Yeah. You know, that's not sufficient. It's not satisfying <laughs> in terms of escape. No. Whereas, oh my God, I am looking down at 80 feet to a fall on my left elbow. That is sufficiently exciting to really get you escaped, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's that, uh, that kind of like moment of like epiphany uh, around the time of uh, like your 30 or so when it seems like you have that realisation that you've been like going about writing the wrong way but like trying to like escape from fantasy is seems kind of difficult. And then uh, in the in the book, you you know you leave uh, London, you move to the Peak District, discover like the landscape, and that seems to be that. And um, returning to your the the stories you used to read as a kid, there's this sort of like combination of circumstances that seem to like slowly kind of offer you a route into doing the kind of writing that you wanted to do. Yeah, it was a very complex relationship, that. I mean, I yeah. think that I, I went through a period of, of reading all the children's books that I'd ever read, rereading them, almost as a kind of, partly as a warning to myself, mm. partly as a goodbye to all that, yeah. you know, and partly to stress to myself the contrast between that and what I thought of as the real world. Um, 
And all of this was an on a semi-conscious attempt to, to try and make some rules for myself around what is real and what isn't, mm. you know. Not, not in the sense that I believed what I wrote about hitting people on the head with swords or any of that, but in the sense that so much of what we do and say and think is just that. It's just discourse. Mm. It's not like falling on your elbow from 20 feet up doing a boulder problem, mm. you know? It's the mo and indeed, the moment you write about that, you've turned it into discourse. Mm. You've turned it, you've, you've, you've put it in the, you've put it out into some kind of malleable space where it can be talked about and modelled and remodelled without any reference to what it actually was before you wrote about mm. it. Um, and for me, that, that, that's been a major kind of problem. Why would you do this? Why would you be driven, and I still haven't answered this, why, why would you be driven to write anything, let alone a fantasy, yeah. if all you'd ever done was looked at the world yeah. and been in the world? Mm -hmm. um, it's weird. Yeah, because uh, in the book, there's it, in your early life, it sounds like you uh, believed that, like, language and especially articulacy would be the way out. Yeah. You thought that language would give you what climbing gave you eventually. You know, there's that moment where uh, I think you're, you're being kind of told to pull up your socks at school or whatever. And you uh, and they're like, you know, if you don't sort yourself out, you're going to be digging ditches. And, you, you know, you say in the book, I, I swore to become more articulate than them. <laughs> Which is like an amazing, yeah, I, I, reading it, I totally understood it, but then, you know, it's preposterous. You know, the, art the idea that articulacy could, uh, but we, it was what so many I of us invest then, in that, right? What I felt most strongly then was that I could never successfully argue back to an adult. Yeah. And it infuriated me. Yeah. And I thought, well, it's words that they use to do this. I will learn yeah. how to do this and I'll get better at it than they are. I was a furious little boy, mm. you know, <laughs> absolutely furious. I don't think anybody understood how furious I was, um, <laughs> including me. Um, but to go through that cycle of, of, of using writing as not, not just as an escape route, but also as an aggressive technique, mm. um, and then to find yourself at 30 having learned to do that for 10 years, suddenly wanting to do almost the exact opposite, mm. which is live some kind of phenomenologically based existence, you know, um, and not write. I gave up writing for two years. Yeah. I managed to give it up and not do anything for two years. Um, but then I got the idea of writing climbers. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that was a great idea, but it was also a huge mistake. Right. Because once you start writing about a, 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 a real thing in your life, you've turned it into a discourse again. Yeah. You know, and what are you going to do then? Yeah. So what, what do you do? Well, I don't know. You get depressed, uh -huh. I think. Also, you get obsessed. I mean, I got so obsessed with rock climbing that it was extraordinary. I mean, for somebody with as little talent as I had at, at that particular game, you know, the word my friends used of me most often was incompetent. Mm. You know, <laughs> you incompetent <laughs> dick was, was, you know, mainly the thing. 
Um, but I was obsessed. I became obsessed. It was a great release. Partly it was a great release to deliberately chase unpleasant sensations mm. and unpleasant situations. Partly it was because when you were doing that stuff, you could not think about anything else. You were really alive in that sense. Mm. You, know, you couldn't even think about the fact that you were 3,000 into the bank manager and didn't know how you're going to pay it back. If you're going to die the next minute, if you don't do the right thing, mm. then you can't think about that anymore. You're safe for that fraction of a second. Mm. Um, so that was good. I mean, that was a good thing to do. But in the end, it wasn't extreme. It wasn't very positive. What it did do was it led me into being able to think about writing that would produce a book like that. Mm. Climbers was the first attempt to, to write a book that squared that particular circle, mm. you know, to do with what's discourse and what's real and mm -hmm. how you write about the world or life or whatever, mm. you know, rather than writing science fiction. Um, in the book, you uh, talk about uh, something along the lines of like, uh, you know, as soon as you got near a national park, your entire body just like relaxed about having like an Still does. yeah, an antidepressant and a, a tranquilizer effect. And it's like really clear reading the book the way that your um, sort of bearings have uh, shuttled between you know uh, the, this you call it a rapidly suburbanizing village where you, where you were born and grew up, and then to London, and then out to the peaks, and then back to London again, and then you know. The, out to Shropshire now, this kind of shuttling between um, urban and rural, and I, 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 uh, I wonder how your relationship with the the landscape has kind of changed and how it's informed your books. Because just you know, it's it's such a uh, kind of uh, significant characteristic of your of your writing, the kind of like way that you in, engage with place. But that sh shuttling to and from, I think that's cyclic as well. Yeah, you know. I think that's just the, the movement from one pole to the opposite pole, um, in a sense. I love the anonymity of London. I was always drawn to the, to the idea that <clears throat> I didn't know anybody in my street and they didn't know me and nobody cared about anybody else. I liked that. Mm. It was, if you're massively anxiety-ridden, that's quite a comfort. If you've got to be in a city, you can think, well, at least I'm anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> at least I don't exist, sort of thing. Mm. Um, but then that becomes a strain in itself, and you find yourself walking further and further inside the city, and then you realise you're looking for the way out. Mm. <laughs> and that's when you move, you know, to the Scottish Highlands or whatever. Not that I ever did that. Mm. Um, it is an interesting... I haven't thought about that. Mm. I haven't thought about that, Jen. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for, Mike. <laughs> no, I mean, it's... Uh, no, it was uh, um, reading the description of your childhood and um, I love that line. Um, it's... Uh, you say, what was going on with us? These kind of, like, weird eruptions of, like, like untimely rural living where, like, your brother catches a hare and your mum jugs it. And you're like messing about with horses, and you know that, like, like as a as a kid, it, it, like these kind of eruptions of like rural life in this like sort of suburban present seem really um, 
really disquieting, you know. And so it was yeah. like it was interesting in the in the in the book to you know to 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 see how the rural figured in like your early life, and then to you know for you as as we know, having read your stuff and it's and in this book here, like the 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 kind of like really uh, like profound um, kind of. Uh, affiliation you have with landscape and you know describing it here as a tranquilizer and such I, I, I found myself noticing the way that the way that that changes over over time for you yeah I think because it worked in the end mm. it, it wasn't just a a substitute or it, it wasn't just a temporary relief mm. I think continued uh, <coughs> continued injections of it finally worked and I calmed down a bit, mm. you know. Um, it's hard to know about the rural stuff when, you, when we were young. I mean, my brother's other obsession was motorcycles, mm. you know, so it wasn't very rural that, or it wasn't rural except in the sense of racing down the rural back roads until he fell off it, having drunk 19 rum and black currants. Holy moly. And was found in what appeared to be a pool of his own blood, but it was not. <laughs> <laughs> I really admired my brother for that. I've got to say, Did you? he had a he had a, all the qualities that I felt that I lacked, you know. <laughs> um, I and I was crap at horses as well. You yeah, know, I was a, a lot worse at horses than I was at climbing. <laughs> I remember, this is really embarrassing. Go on. Um, I worked at, at, at a stable for about six months and, and I fell off almost every day on exercise. So this wasn't entirely my fault because we were expected to not just ride one and lead one, uh, yeah, yeah, but to ride one and lead two. And that's really, that is really quite difficult, yeah. especially if they're corned up hunters, you know, 16 to 17 hounds, tough beasts. Yeah. And I remember ending up one morning riding down the middle of the A444, riding one and leaving two <laughs> in front of a, an enormous goods vehicle, <laughs> which the guy, the guy driving it, give him his due, he never once used his horn because he was so utterly terrified what would happen to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the second thing is that after about six months of that, it was Christmas yeah. and, the, and the, uh, the head of the stable's wife came to give me a Christmas card and I gave her my Christmas card and she opened it and she said, Mike, she said, you've got such fantastic fantastically beautiful handwriting. Why don't you think about being a teacher? <laughs> I.e. leave these stables yeah. instantly. Um, but you were a teacher. That's, you did that, right? I did that for a bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, I took her advice, Yeah. Uh, in a sense. Um, but no, I don't get the rural thing at all. That's why I put it in. Mm. Um, it was as if you felt that because you lived in a semi-rural condition or geographical condition or state that you ought to do the things that that, that they did that were uh, associated with it mm. yeah i'm going to ask you one of them like really annoying big open-ended questions that are uh, virtually impossible to answer now no i'm not i am a bit though um uh 
I am, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I want to ask you about uh, your sense of the responsibility of fiction writing. Because uh, I always get the sense from you um, that the, there's, a, there's, a, a, like a, there's an ethics to what you're doing. Um, and you believe that, like, uh, fiction writing does come with, uh, you know, responsibilities. And in a sense, uh, partly to do with that, you know, the generation you came up with that were like so... The, the 60s writers that were like so uh, interested in interrogating fictional form and thinking about, um, the, you know, the forms and functions of fiction and, and, and what it does. But um, it seems and especially in this book, it seems that you feel that responsibility and that sense of, um, you know, caution with what people do with fictions. Uh, you, you seem to feel that even more keenly now. Yeah. Well, I do. Um, I think that we live... I think I say somewhere in the book, you know, we don't... I don't think we live in the Anthropocene at all. I think mm. we live in the age of fantasy. And that, therefore, it... A writer should be a bit careful about how they understand fiction and how they understand particularly imaginative fiction mm. um, in a situation where stories and narratives have kind of t taken over as a a way of life, almost. We spend most of our lives absorbing fictions from the built environment, you know. Um, a brand is as much a fiction as a sword and sorcery novel. In fact, they're very similar. Mm. And in fact, several of us got invitations in the early 2000s from brand managers at corporates. Did you? To, to go for a, a well-financed weekend, long weekend, to talk Storytelling. about... Storytelling. Yeah, to talk about how fantasy could help them in building their brands. And, uh, in fact, long before that, I had begun to be terrified by the, the sense I had that, that particularly fantasy fiction... Um, and I think now here probably more in terms of movies than, than anything else has become a kind of episteme. Mm. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of seeing and, and, and having knowledge of the world and managing the world. Mm. And it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't that. And we have a responsibility as writers to kind of every so often, somehow, via one technique or another, remind the reader mm. that they're reading a a thing. Yeah. I won't say story because, you know, story is this story is this big, sloppy, sentimental word that people use yeah. nowadays. Even scientists, they tell a story. They don't mm. they're not in possession of any facts. They haven't done any research. Mm. They don't know anything, but they are telling you a story. Mm. Well bollocks. You know? <laughs> um, it's absolutely time, I think. If I ever became dictator... Oh, yeah. Which, of course, is never going to happen. Never say um, never, Mike. I would ban fiction. 
I sort of think that's fair, yeah. I would ban it. Yeah, yeah I me think too. it's fair. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would ban it. I know, uh, I mean, I don't think I need to say any more about that. No, no, no. But just know that I'm with you. I, I think narrative is highly suspect and yeah. I don't care yeah. who knows it. Yeah. And I, and I mean that. Should we open the floor for questions? Have you yeah. on that bombshell? <laughs> <laughs> OK, questions for Mike. Uh, we've got a roving... Oh, there we go. Roving Mike coming to you. Mike, I'd like you to ask you a question about music. Uh, there's a lovely passage in the book about the folk guitarist Davy Graham. And I wondered to what extent uh, the adventures of somebody like Davy or even like Roy Harper became a conscious or unconscious model for your own kind of like scrambling of genre or like trespass again across certain kind of borders or boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Davy Graham and uh, Davy Graham in the early to mid 60s was a, a, a direct influence in that sense. You know, the, the day the day you heard him play, the way he could play when he came back from Morocco, and the day you heard him say, you know, I want to be hybrid, I want to make these mixes, that was the day you thought, ooh, I wonder if I could do that, you know? And ever since, for me, it's been pick and mix, you know? Pick and mix is my rule. Um, so, yes. And especially Roy Harper, too. You know, he was a real hero of mine. And Bert Jansch. Yeah. You, in the, I think it was in the 90s, you worked on a collaboration with a really amazing artist called Ian Miller. Yeah. Uh, a, a thing called uh, Luck in the Head, a comic. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of wondered, A, how you felt about what came out, and B, what you felt about the form, working in the form in general, because it's obviously something, I think, you know, it's not, not your usual form, basically. No, it was... Uh... Ian and I were fans of one another's work um, for two or three years be before that. And we suddenly said to one another one day, well, you know, why don't we try and do something? Um, but I couldn't come up with um, a new idea because every time I thought about the medium that we were going to work in, my own way of working and my own perception of how, how you turn events into form got in the way. So I said to Ian, well, look, you know, why don't we take a story I've already written and basically do a to and fro on it? You, 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 you begin and send me your results <laughs> every, every week or so and we'll discuss them and we'll, and we'll move on as, as a continuing collaboration um, this worked for about a week and a half you know because Ian <laughs> has got a really strong personality and uh, he's always looking for a quarrel <laughs> so basically he would come to me with the most outrageous interpretation of a scene um, outrageous in the sense that it was his version of it was totally irrelevant to the original or, uh, or that it was that it was quite sharply disgusting in some way. Um, and he would do this to try and get me to quarrel with him because that was part of his process. Um, and all I would say was, yeah, this is great. <laughs> because I'd already worked him out, uh... um, basically. So that's why it changes style 
It's probably the only comic book that is like like two pages in one style and then two pages in another style and two pages in another style. Well, certainly it was early on in that kind of uh, that kind of management of the imagery um, because we were constantly trying to outwit one another in those terms. But it was great. I mean, I, I, I'm still very proud of it. I was recently having an argument with a friend about uh, where the contemporary obsession with witches, by contemporary I probably just mean Instagram, uh, has arisen from or what's precipitated it. And I wondered what is your opinion? Please be on my side. I don't think I can answer that. Um, because to me it seems like a continuity. I don't think the original ever went away in a sense. What we have is a is a, a a sort of continuity witchcraft, which is which seems very reasonable to me. We've got one more question, bonus question. Thanks. The first story I read by you was called Ignoro, um, and I happened to find it at random as a child in a bookshop very far from here. And I was taken by how it captured very specifically something I'd felt, a sort of sense of loss for a place that you couldn't quite define. And I, I've always wondered since then, since 12 or 13, what your relationships are and, and have been with, with those places, Ignaro and, and Viraconium. And if, if that loss is as real for you as it, it seems to be for some of your characters, or if they're even specific places for you, if they're more sort of part of this more theoretical understanding of kind of opposing yeah. a tradition in world building. So. I think um, essentially I was always very interested in that form of nostalgia for somewhere you've never been and, and couldn't possibly go, as it were, which lies behind a load of uh, all the best fantasy um, and certainly all the best children's fantasy. Um, and, and it's a thing that you feel, I felt very strongly as a child, and I think children do feel nostalgia for somewhere they've never been. Um, I have no views upon it as a thing I was interested in the fictional structures that you could make around it and how you would modify those to stress different aspects of the, of the as it were, problem or the opposition. Um, and thus in this book, there's this theme of the secret garden, which is heavily linked to what you've talked about. Um, this idea that somewhere we've all got that garden, you know, which we will stumble over behind a green door in, in the most perfect brick wall, red brick wall, um, from the 15th century. Uh, it's always seemed to me to be um, central to human thought in some way. But again, not that I have an, I don't have an opinion on that, except I don't like to see it used as an escapist form, um, because I think that's a waste of it. You know, because I think the impulse itself is something that you should be writing about, not you shouldn't, you shouldn't be providing it as a kind of escape for the reader. Um, and, and that's never left me. You know, it's still red hot as a topic in, in, in this book. Mm. It's a good question. Thanks. I think that's it. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you. No, thank you. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.